Well, as I said, we're going to look at a song that's known as the Benedictus, and the reason it's known for that, if you were here last week, we looked at Mary's Magnificat. Uh, I'm a fan of Latin, even though I don't know it, but uh, the reason it's called the the Benedictus, and hopefully I'm pronouncing it correctly, but uh, that's the Latin word for blessed, which in our text, which you'll see is, is in the Latin Vulgate version, the first word of the text. So that's why, where it gets its name. But the, the uh, word blessed itself, and we mentioned this last week as well, uh, has a meaning of to speak well of somebody, to, spe- to heap praise on them. It's, it's really where we get our word eulogizing. You know, and unfortunately at, at a funeral, to talk about this after we prayed, but you know, at the beginning of a funeral, somebody is eulogized, they're, t- they're spoken well of. And so this morning in the text, what we're going to see is Zacharias is blessing or, in a sense, eulogizing or speaking well, though, particularly of God and, we'll see later on, uh, of his son John as well, for he has been told that he's going to have a son. But we're going to look at the song that he sings, which is really a prophecy. And so we're going to look at that this morning in the text. So let's... Uh, Let's read the text in its entirety. Uh, We're going to read verses 67 through 80. And then we'll come back and talk about it. And again, highlight a few points along the way. So this is what it reads. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which, which, excuse me, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the desert until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So this is an account of a few things again. The praise song that Zacharias sings because of what God has done and because of who his son will be because of what God has called in the prophecy earlier Hey, your son's going to do such and such. And we'll look at that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So let's look at this benediction of God or this praise or blessing of God from the very beginning. So we see that Zacharias here is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And he prophesies. And under the guidance of God's Spirit, he's going to proclaim a great and exciting truth for all to understand. And in the context of this book, if you remember, at the very beginning, Luke is um, giving more evidence to this gentleman named Theophilus uh, so that he might know the truth 
about what has been taught. And so this is what John, or excuse me, Zacharias is going to do. He's going to give you evidence of this great and exciting thing that has come so that you will it'll strengthen your faith, your faith. And Luke is telling the reader, because uh, he's the narrator of this, uh, that what is about to be spoken by Zacharias is significant. That's why he uses this character. Zacharias is going to say something of great significance. And as I mentioned already, Zacharias is going to proclaim two things for us. And this will really be the, you know, kind of the heart of what we're going to talk about. Number one, what God has done for his people. That's what he's going to proclaim. And then again, what his son is going to do for God's people. So that's, that should help you remember what today's sermon is going to be about. What God has done for his people and what John, who's Zachariah's son, is going to do for God's people. And so let's look at the first one, this first part of the benediction, for what, what has God exactly done. As Zachariah is prophesying this great truth that Luke wants everybody to know because he's included it in his narrative, in his gospel, Looking back at our text now, specifically look at verse 68. So he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. So he's eulogizing the Lord, you know, great and praising him in a sense. Why? For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. God has done this. He's not talking about John, his son. He'll talk about him later. But he's talking about Jesus coming to this earth. This is the great redemption that God has accomplished. So John's miraculous birth, which in the preceding verses kind of give inclination to Zacharias that this is going to happen because Jesus hasn't been born yet. But his son, but John's, excuse me, Zacharias' son, John has been born. So this miraculous birth of John, because you remember his parents were older, uh, beyond uh, childbearing age, it's confirmation that the Messiah is soon to come. And so that's why Zacharias recognizes this. Hey, I was told I'm going to have a son, even though me and my wife are beyond childbearing age. And he came, and this is a fulfillment of God's prophecy to me about my son who's going to proclaim the Messiah. In addition, if you remember last week, we talked about how Mary had come and spent a few months with them in their house. And so he had firsthand knowledge and awareness of the reality of the coming Messiah. He had it prophesied to him early on. Now his son is born, and he had Mary with them. And I'm sure, you know, there was a lot. Just imagine the conversations and the things that were going on in the home at that time. So what God has done, the great thing that God has done for them is that he has visited them, his people, and accomplished redemption for them. And how has he done this? How has he done this? Look at the following verse. It says in verse 69, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. What he's talking about here is that the Messiah is coming. That is the redemption. That is who is busy them. And he's going to save his people from their sins, which Zechariah talks about later on in his song. And we'll spend some time on that. So how did he accomplish redemption? Because he sent his son, and his son is going to redeem them. God has sent the Redeemer. Look at verses uh, 69 through 70. Let's read that. And he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets of old. 
the child that's going to be born is the salvation of God, and he's from the house of David, which is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We've been going through Isaiah for quite some time now, and you can see some of the, the parallels, the wording that's spoken by uh, Zacharias is what he's getting from Old Testament prophets, even from the book of Isaiah, about a Messiah coming from the house of David. This is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Luke is making a connection from the Old to the New Testament that everything that we have talked about or learned about as children, he's telling his people, this is who we've been waiting for. It is a child who is spoken by those prophets of old, he says. This is the real deal, in a sense. It's not, hey, we hope this Messiah comes and make things better. No, he's going to make things better. It's not a hope. It's not a, hey, this is the new guy. Let's give him a shot and see what he does. It's not like political leaders, right? Every often we have uh, elections, two years, four years, six years, depending on the position, and everybody's promising things are going to get better, and we're hoping that they get better, or they're not going to be as bad if somebody else gets elected, and we vote like that. But here, that's not what's happening here. The Messiah is coming, and he's going to make things better. It is for sure going to happen. He's the real deal. He's not going to be just a political leader, which we'll see in a moment. He's going to save his people from their sins. And so Zacharias continues on with this song. Look at verse 71 through 73. So he realizes that the son that is coming from Mary is going to redeem us. It's God visiting us. It's Emmanuel, God, with us. And in verses 71 through 73, he talks about how this salvation will come about. What is he saving us from? What is he redeeming us from? That's important. Hey, what are you going to do for us? Look at what it says, 71 through 73. And this is their great hope. Salvation, so this is what the Redeemer is going to do. He's going to give them salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his old covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. So this bears some explaining because who are the enemies that Zacharias is talking about? When he says, hey, God is coming to visit us and to redeem us from who? From our enemies. Who are these enemies? Well, we have to remember something here that Zacharias is speaking as an Old Testament prophet, right? And what that means, we don't have a lot of time to explain this. Uh, you could talk to me afterwards if you'd like, but for now you just have to, you know, take the evidence of my argument. Uh, his words are typical of Old Testament prophecy, right? He sounds like a prophet of old. And so the words are typical of an Old Testament prophet where salvation is described in earthly political terms. That's how the Old Testament prophets spoke. These are earthly political terms so they can understand what's happening. Now the evidence of this can be seen if we look at verses 77 through 80, which we'll get to in a moment, where the chief meaning of this redemption is a, is a spiritual sense. It's not literal. He's going to save us from our enemies and he's going to take down Rome and we're going to live in peace for all eternity because that did not happen, did it? So it can't have that meaning in particular or the, the primary meaning is not there. It's a more spiritual sense. And let me give you some evidence of that. If you drop down to verse 77 and look at 77 and 79, so God's going to redeem his people. 
John is going to get the people ready. And look in the senses he's going to get them ready for this redemption. Look at what he says. So this is John's mission. To give his people the knowledge of salvation. This is the redemption. By the forgiveness of their sins. They're redeemed from their forgiveness from their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon all those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. So even though he's using literal earthly terms, the main meaning here is a spiritual sense. And if you think about it, our enemies in this life are primarily, primarily spiritual, aren't they? Think of the, the New Testament constantly talks about our enemy as one, Satan, or satanic forces. Um, it also talks about our enemies as uh, sin and death. So sin, death, and satanic forces are our primary men, our enemies throughout the New Testament. If you were to look through the Old Testament and who our enemies are, they're rarely real people. They're rarely uh, you know, tangible, you know, evidence, things like that. Now, there's persecution, right? Matter of fact, we're told persecution's coming. So if God came to save us from our enemies, how come the church suffers still? So there's, there's, a, there's a bigger meaning than, than just taking things so literal all the time. And again, this is typical of Old Testament prophecy. They use, again, earthly political terms but the sense is usually spiritual. And let me just give you a few examples of this in the New Testament, where the New Testament describes us being saved from, from enemies that, again, are not physical. In Romans 6.14, for example, there's a lot in Romans, but I'm just going to give you a couple here. Romans 6.14 says, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So it's terms that we can, you know, we, literal terms that we understand, but it's a spiritual sense. Saved from sin and become slaves of righteousness. Romans 8, 2 also describes that we are saved from the power of sin and death. It says this, for the law of the spirit of the life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. All those things are true of every believer in this room and throughout world history from the time that Christ came until the time that he returns again. We have been freed from sin, from death, and even from uh, Satan, in a sense. If you go to 1 Peter 5, right, Satan is talked about as our enemy. And 1 Peter 5, 8, let me turn there with you, talks about Satan being our enemy, like an adversary, right? He roams around seeking whom he may devour. But we are already saved from Satan in one sense. So you get the, the spiritual sense is really prevalent in the New Testament over and over again. And so even though maybe Zacharias doesn't truly understand this, it is developed in New, the New Testament over and over again. Just read through the entire New Testament of letters and you'll see that over and over again, the spiritual sense is what it's talking about. But, thankfully, that's not it. Because we must remember that the literal sense of this prophecy will also be fulfilled. And it will be fulfilled at Christ's second coming. Right? Revelation, for example, you could turn there with me. In Revelation chapter 20 uh, and 21, we're going to look at a few verses here. Because in Revelation, what's described 
is that our eternal home for all eternity are free from Satan, from sin, and from physical enemies. They no longer can touch us. So in Revelation 20, let's see if we can get there with you. Starting in verse, just look at verse 10. And speaking of the destruction of Satan, it says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the final consummation of the defeat of Satan. So he was defeated at the cross. You can go to the book of Colossians to see that. And he's going to be defeated, and he's defeated at the cross in a, a spiritual sense. He's going to be defeated literally, finally, at the second coming, where he's no longer going to have an effect in this world. And turn uh, to the next chapter, chapter 21, looking at verses 25 through 27. Here's an example of some more of these prophecies being fulfilled literally. It says, in speaking of our future state, in the daytime, there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of nations into it. And nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is an example of these prophecies coming to literal, uh, literally being passed and culminated at Christ's second coming. And all this happens. So in the church age, and the age that we're living now from the time that Christ came until the time that he comes again, we experience these blessings in a spiritual sense. And sometimes, you know what? God does deliver us from our enemies, right? God does still literally do that. But in the second coming, it will finally be, ultimately be completed. Satan, death, sin, enemies will all be destroyed. And now going back to our text, Let's go back to Luke um, chapter 1. And looking at verses 72 through 73 for a moment, just to finish this out here. It says, the, uh, so God's going to do all these things. He's going to redeem us from sin, from death. And then look at what it says. This is really the why. Why would he do that? Why would God do that for us? Look at verse 22. To show mercy toward our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. The reason that God does this is because he said he was going to do it. It was a covenant promise back in the Old Testament to their fathers, to Abraham. Look at all the Old Testament language used in this story. It's talking about the covenant with David, the covenant with Abraham. He's going to do all these things. God is doing this because he's merciful and he promised to keep his word and we can trust it. And Zacharias is seeing this. He promised me a son and he kept his word. And because of this, the Messiah is going to come. And this is because of the Old Testament prophecies. God's word will come to pass. He keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant. God is known as the God of covenants. He doesn't break them. And even though we break them, and even though the nation of Israel has broken them, he is saying, you know what? I'm still bringing about my redemption for you because of my mercy towards your fathers, towards his holy covenant, right? That, that, those things that he swore to Abraham, their father. 
And so God's salvation from his enemy, their enemies, is coming to pass because he promised it in the past. It's going to happen. But not only are the the people of Israel here in this context and us, by extension, redeemed from something, but we are redeemed to do something, right? We're talking about being saved out of darkness and put into God's marvelous light, right? Where we were dead and now we're alive. So we're saved from something and we're saved to something. And that's what he means in verse 74 through 75. He says, to grant us that we being rescued from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So we're not only redeemed from our enemies, we're also redeemed to serve God without fear in holiness, in righteousness all of our days. That was the hope of the nation Israel, right? God was going to put them into a promised land where they will experience his blessing and they can have a fellowship with God without interference from the enemies. But they always broke covenant and then God would bring their enemies into their land to discipline them and get them to turn around. And so he's saying now is going to be the time in a spiritual sense first and then in a literal sense where you can serve God without fear and holiness all of our days. Think of that. Each and every one of us who have come to Christ, we are considered holy and righteous because of what he has done. So we do serve him in one sense, in righteousness and holiness. And I doubt that any of you this morning, including myself, would say, yeah, I am righteous and holy because, you know, I just live this great life. You know, just ask my spouse, ask my kids. They'll tell you how great I am. Not mine, but you guys, you know. But if you think about, right, we have his holiness and his righteousness set upon us in a spiritual sense, and that's how the Father sees us, and we serve him in holiness and righteousness. It's the ultimate aim of our redemption is to serve God. God saved us so that we might serve him. He didn't save us just to have us escape eternal, you know, uh, uh, internal punishment from him, which is a great benefit, by the way, but it's to serve him. He saved you so that you can serve him. It's like I was put on a team so that I can play, right? So they can be part of it. Matter of fact, Titus chapter 2, look at that with me, verses 11 through 14, express this purpose perfectly. Titus chapter 2, look at verses 11 through 14. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, for what purpose? Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteous, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, so here's that redemption, redeem us from lawless deeds and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works." So God redeemed us so that we might serve him and glorify him. We're not just saved, um, you know, saved, saved from punishment. And unfortunately, that's what our world thinks, right? I'm saved from the bad stuff, but I don't do anything as a result of that. Because true salvation brings about repentance. You're taken from darkness to light from being an enemy of God to being a child of God and serving Him. A lot of people just, I just want to get, you know, I want the freedom to do what I want. I just want fire insurance to escape punishment. But there's no change in their life. 
That's not true redemption. That's not a true understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not just stay in the manger and come to save the world and give us peace. And now we have peace because God came. No, he came, then he died, and he rose again, and now we have life. But there's, there's our part as well that we have to play in that. He offers that to us, and then we are transformed by what he has done. He makes us holy in righteousness and prepares good works for us, according to Titus. <clears throat> you see, redemption and salvation and true worship will fully be experienced when? So we have it in one sense, but these three things, uh, redemption, salvation, and true worship that he's talking about here, will be fully experienced at the second coming because then we will really, in the fullest sense, worship God. We will see for the first time our God. At the second coming, in the new heavens and the new earth. Again, turn with me to Revelation 22. Um, Look at this one. Because this is the future for every person who's been redeemed. Look at how John describes this in Revelation 22, starting in verse 1. It says, Then he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb. And in the middle of the street, on either side, the river, uh, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Okay, now look at this. And there will no longer be any curse. So that curse of sin is finally eradicated. We still live in it in a sense. But here, this is when it will literally be taken away. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And His bond servants will do what? Serve Him. We've been redeemed to serve Him now. We're going to serve Him in eternity. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, foreheads, and there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need for the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. That's the final con- the consummation of our ability to serve God. We're redeemed to serve God now, and we're redeemed, and at the second coming we will serve him literally before him, we will serve him. Now what that all entails, I don't know. But it's going to be glorious, I'm sure. Because just think of this, there's going to be no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. Right? I was talking to a brother this morning about, he's like, hey, happy early birthday. How old are you going to be? Uh, on Tuesday's my birthday, if anybody was wondering. Um, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to be 48. And, we start, and then I started joking about being old. I was like, yeah, yesterday I was you know, getting the lights out in the, in the front yard. And then when I got up off the ground, it was like, Ugh. and a few little, little you took you know, short steps until I got my, my strength back. That's not going to happen. I'm going to put Christmas lights everywhere in heaven and not worry about it. No more pain. Not even that little pain like that. It's all going to be gone. And I'm going to serve God in real holiness and righteousness all of my days, along with the rest of you. Amen for that. All right, so back to our text. As as great as Revelation is, let's go back to Luke. Now that formally ends what's called the the Benedictus in verse 76 because he's praising, it's really praising God. But then as I said at the very beginning, we're going to look at two parts of this, what God has done for us people. So that was all God. God's done all this, keeps his covenant, keeps his promise, redeems us 
from uh, you know, Satan, death, sin, and redeems us to serve him. And now he's going to say, now he's going to praise God for what his son's part is going to be in this. Right? He says, uh, look at verse 76. Right? He says, and you, child, so you can see it makes that change from God, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. He's talking about John now, his son. He began by praising God for all that God is going to do. Now he's praising uh, God for what his son is going to do for God. And, he's, and here's, the, here's what he prophesies. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. I mean, who knows? We don't know when this was, uh, when this was said. I mean, he could have been holding his child, looking at him. I mean, how many of us have held our children and, and said something, you know, you're, what you're going to do or what we hope, it's really probably what we hope you're going to do, you know? We don't know. But he's holding his son and says, you, child, are going to be the prophet of the Most High. You are going to, that's what you're going to do. That is your calling. For you, he goes on, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. And so let's just stop with that right there. So this is what John's going to do. John is going to prepare the way for the Lord. Right? He's going to go before God, meaning Jesus, when he comes, and he prepares the people's hearts. He's going to give them knowledge of salvation for the, forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sins. See, if it was a literal thing, he would have said, John would have came and he's going to start wiping out the Romans, and then Jesus is going to come and then he's going to do it, and we're going to be freed from our enemies. That, that's not the sense. It's a, it's a spiritual sense. The way that God saves us from our enemies, as I mentioned before, is he's going to begin with the enemy of sin. He's going to deal with that first. And so John's uh, mission, John's uh, uh, ministry is going to be prepare people for that. Right? He's to go before and prepare the way of the Lord. Right? He's going to expl- basically, he's going to explain the way of salvation to the people. He's going to set them right because they had a misconception, a misunderstanding of what that was. He's going to help them understand how to get right with God. Turn two chapters to Luke chapter 3, and you can see him do this. Look at verse 7. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. So John wasn't into making people feel good. Just know that right away. And he wasn't into, let's see, let's just see what he says, and you'll understand so, so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. So there's people coming out to be baptized by John, right? That's a good thing. But look at what he says. You brood of vipers. <clears throat> I'm going to try that at our next baptism when you guys are cooking. <laughs> you brood of vipers. Okay, this is what he says. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from the stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So just those two verses, and we'll stop with that. You can read the rest of the story on your own. So what's going on here? John, these people are coming to God in what they think is the right way, but he's correcting them. He's like, you think coming to get baptized, that's all you need to do? No, it's not about the baptism. There needs to be a transformation in your life. And he goes on to say what they need to do. Yes, they should be baptized, but they don't stop there. There should be a visible transformation of your life. It's like we're, they're redeemed from something, but they didn't get that two-part, to serve God. Remember, they're saying, we're from Abraham. We don't need to do what you're saying. Like, 
They're using their past, their religious upbringing. I don't, in the sense saying, I don't need to go to church. You know, I was born Catholic. I was baptized Catholic or my parents were Protestant, whatever the, the argument may be for you. I'm a good person in, in one sense is what they're saying. I don't need what you're selling, John. And so this is what uh, Zacharias is prophesying that John needs to correct. He needs to prepare the way for get, to get the people to understand that they have sinned against God and they need to repent because they don't think they've done that, right? They're, he's saying again, we have Abraham as our father. We're okay. You know, I was born in the United States. That means I'm good, whatever the argument may be. Or I'm, a, I'm a, from the nation of Israel, so I'm good. No, he said that's not it. He has to help them understand what salvation means so that when Christ comes, they'll be ready to accept him. That was his role, right? They need to realize, number one, that they've sinned against God and they can't justify themselves before God and they need to confess their sins. They need to admit that as well. It's one thing to recognize, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a good person, but I haven't done this, this, or that, or at least I don't do that, that, and this, or at least I don't do what that guy does. No, that's not it. You need to confess your sin. They need, again, to realize they've sinned against God and they need to admit that to God. That's what he's saying here in text. And going back to our, our story here, let's look again. So he's going to prepare the way to give them knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. They need to understand that. How do they get that? Right? And then he reminds them again, he, he takes it back to God in verse 78 that all this is happening because the tender, the tender mercies of our God. The reason he's, having, he's even sending John into this world is because of God's mercy. Again, to his, he sent the Redeemer because he's keeping covenant, and he's sending out somebody before the Redeemer to prepare the way for the Redeemer because of his mercy. Like God just, you just see God wave after wave trying to save people or sending out his messengers to get his word out. And he's going to do this this is John's ministry. And then we're told in, in verse 80 that, you know what? Until John began his ministry, he was just preparing for it. His life was a preparation for that one moment where he gets to go before the Savior and tell people about him. And so that's the, the, the hymn of, of Zacharias. So let's conclude with some, with some application for each and every one of us. So how can we bless God? How can we, you know, offer a a benedictus towards God. And, and it's going to be the in exact same way that we have been talking about this morning. Number one, first of all, how can we bless God? We should praise God for His redemption, which is exactly what we do when we worship. I mean, again, think of all the songs even that we sung this morning. We're praising God for what? For His redemption, what He's done for us. But it, doesn't stop, it, it shouldn't just be on Sunday mornings, right? I mean, we should always be praising God for his redemption. If you truly understand what God has done for you, you will always praise him. And you will praise him right after you sin too and ask for forgiveness that he even forgives you, that you've done that again, that you've denied him, that you forgot about him, that you've sinned against him and yet over and over again, God forgives you because he's redeemed you already. You are already righteous and holy in his sight. Again, just think of that reality each and every one of us, we, we know our own hearts, right? We know that, you know, we're not as good as we think we are. Other people think we are. And God knows that, but yet God sees you. He sees me and sees you as righteous and holy. 
and he lets you serve him. He redeemed you because of what his son has done, because he's faithful to his word. And for that reason, we should remember to praise God for his redemption, his redemption now. But also, the second point is this, we should praise God for his coming redemption. All those things that we just talked about and looked at in Revelation, all those things is our reality, is our future for those of us who trust in Christ. One day there's going to be no more death, no more crying, no more suffering. We'll be reunited with our loved ones who have gone in the Lord, and they're already there waiting for us, already worshiping Him. So we should praise God for that, that you have a future, no matter what happens here, no matter how bad it gets here. We have that promise. God kept, in Zechariah's mind, God kept His promise to their fathers of ancient Israel and brought about the Messiah. And God's going to keep his promise and bring him again. That's a great truth. And, no ma- and again, it's comforting to me because, you know, when life stinks and when bad things happen, you always have that future. That's awesome to think about. Nobody else has that. They, they hope it gets, they're hoping it gets better. I mean, and again, some people are hoping on world leaders that they're going to make this world better, and, and, and we pray that they do, but you know what? This isn't our home. This isn't our ultimate hope. If we look at church history, our, our uh, predecessors suffered a lot, and they tried, I mean, the reason this nation was established was Christians were trying to find a better place to live just to serve God without the hindrance of the government. You know, and the reality is, you know, if some people get elected and have their ways, we might be doing the same thing again. I'm, I was looking at, like, how's Iceland? Do they let us worship God and not take away my rights to worship God? I better take my kids before they get married so they have to go with me, right? Because <laughs> once they get married, you know, they're on, they get to do what they want. But, I mean, the, the reality is, is, is you know, we, we have to understand. We've been, we've been blessed to not have that interference by our government. But if you're watching what's going on in the government, some of them want to tell you what I can preach here, what I can say, who we can uh, have on staff. They want to take away our rights and our freedom. So let's, that's why I'm like, okay, no, even if they do that, man, we'll go underground. We'll worship God underground. But we know one day we're going to worship God forever. And nobody's without fear. Nobody can take that away. And so we praise God for that. Thirdly and lastly, just like John, we should prepare people for God's visitation. Our mission as a church is we were redeemed to be saved, but then we were redeemed to serve God. We too, like John, are to go out and tell people about the coming Messiah. One, we tell them he came, which is what we celebrate at Christmas time, right? He came to save us, to redeem us. And guess what? He's coming again. And we can prepare the way of our world, meaning those people in our lives, in our home, in our neighborhoods, at our workplace, people you run into on the street. Now, what I would say is don't take John's uh, chapter 3, verse 7, and go out there and call people a brood of vipers. That's not the, we don't want to do that. Well, it might call for that, but use some discernment. <laughs> That's, you know, hey, go out in front of bonds, and as people come in, hey, you brood of vipers. Some people do that. <laughs> I would not be an advocate of that. But let me just give you a few tangible ways that we can do this. You know, and it's not like, you know, doesn't freak you out or scare you too much. Number one, this is the easiest and probably often most neglected way. Pray for their salvation. 
Each and every one of us know people that don't know the Lord. We should be praying for them. preparing. Their, that's the best way to prepare their hearts. God, open their eyes. Open their, you know, soften their hearts. Open their ears so they can hear what you say. And if you're too afraid to talk to them, pray for somebody else to talk to them. Pray for somebody in their workplace, somebody at their school. Maybe they have family members that, that know the Lord and they'll talk to them. And they're probably praying that you would talk to them, their family members, whoever it is you're thinking of. We need to pray. We need to commit to pray for people that we know, that we love, even people that we don't know, even our enemies, right? Pray for their salvation. That's number one. Number two, live the gospel before them. What do they see in our lives? Do they see you living out the gospel or do they just hear you say you go to church and you're saved? Can they point to you and say, yeah, that, that's a believer, you know, they, and we're not perfect, believe me. I mean, we all know that. But do we give people reasons to not believe the gospel by our lifestyle? Are we total hypocrites in our lifestyle before them? So pray for their salvation. Live the gospel before them. If you looked at in, in chapter 3 of, of Luke, if you, if you looked at the rest of what John said, although he said that harshly, he goes, he told them, you know what, to do good, like, if somebody, you have an extra tunic, give it to somebody, is what he was saying to them. You guys need to live like you're saved, is what he was telling them. And we need to do the same in our world. And this prepares people. And thirdly and lastly is just share the gospel with them. Again, not the brood of viper message. But again, the simple message is, you know what, God came into this world, this is what we celebrate at Christmas time, to redeem us because we've all sinned against God. You know, and that's the hardest part is people to admit that they've sinned and that they need God, right? Again, because they're going to say, well, I'm good. You know, I, don't need to go, I don't need to go to church to be a good person, and that's true. You don't need to go to church to be a good person, but you go to church because you love the Lord. That's why we're here. We're not, hopefully none of you are here because, you know, this is like a, a check mark on your good deeds thing. doesn't account for it. That's as good as saying, well, my, I'm a, my Abraham's my father. doesn't mean anything. Sharing the gospel with them. They need God. God loves them. God died for them. He came to save you. And you need to ask for forgiveness of that so he might forgive you. That's a simple gospel message. And if you don't, you know, you'll, you know, unfortunately suffer separation from him for all eternity. And it's not like one big party when you're separated from him. That's not the story. And then, unfortunately, that's probably the hardest part for most of us to tell people what happens if they don't do it. They, they spend eternity without God being judged. But that's the truth, right? We want to tell them the bad thing so they helpfully understand the good thing even more. And that's a simple presentation, and none of us ever get to do it that way. I understand that. But pray about it. You know, like John, John prepared himself to go out on the mission field. Are you preparing yourself to go out in the mission field of your life? What do we spend our time studying, doing? You know, God's called us to serve him. Do you, do you spend some of your time, I hope, preparing to do that? I want to serve God. How do I do that? Simply sharing the gospel. And, you know, if you don't know something, are you, are you taking time to learn it? I mean, a lot of us, when we have hobbies and activities that we don't know something, right, we, we read about it, we practice. We need to do that with our own faith. I mean, what's more important than that? And so we can do that as well. So, again, how do we bless God? We should praise God for his redemption. We should praise God for his coming redemption. And we should prepare people for God's visitation. Let's pray. Lord God, 
just like uh, Zacharias blessed you for what you've done for him and his people, we do the same right now. Lord God, we thank you so much for redeeming us, a people who did not deserve to be redeemed. And before you came into our lives, honestly, we probably didn't even care about it. Maybe some of us were even hostile towards you, very vocally. And so, Lord God, we thank you that in your mercy and in your great promises to your everlasting covenants, you sent your son into this world to live and die, be buried and rise again so that we too might have life if we believe on you and trust in you for your salvation. And I pray this morning that each and every one of us that has done that, that we would leave this place praising you even more and that we would look forward to the day that you come back again and praise you for that and that we would look for opportunities and prepare ourselves to share your word with other people. And I pray also this morning, if there's anybody in this room, Lord God, that does not yet acknowledge that they've sinned against you and that they need you, that they would do that. That during our worship time and, or even afterwards, they would come up and pray with us. And Lord, we might uh, talk to them about redemption. And so we ask for that, Lord God. And again, I just pray that you would give each and every believer in this room uh, power in the Holy Spirit, and a vision to share your word with somebody this year. At least one person, Lord God, that we might bring them to church, but more importantly, we might bring them to you. And so we thank you, Lord God, for your word and for all that you've done for us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.